to come up, and she's going to read scripture for us today. So let me invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. Let's all stand as we read this section of scripture. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things of the church, which in his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to spend time, Lord, just uh, focusing on your word today. And would you strengthen us? Would you um, counsel us? Would you comfort us? Would you challenge us, Lord, through uh, the ministry of your word this morning? And Lord, just allow me to be your messenger. Lord, this is your time. And I just ask, Lord, that you would, uh, you would work, Lord, through your messenger in a way that uh, you would accomplish your will. And uh, Lord, may we ultimately glorify you with our attention, with our affection for you, with our uh, desire, Lord, to grow in you. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, a quick, quick look at the church in America. And when I say the church in America, I'm talking about everyone that kind of calls themselves Christians. So this is a broad, broad swoop. We may be tempted to ask, is it really possible I mean, is it really possible to be the kind of church that God wants us to be? There's so much worldliness that has crept into the church um, that turns us away from God's word to man's wisdom. And let me just highlight a few, and these, again, very broad, general statements, but I think you'll, you'll get the, the drift of where I'm coming from. The church has become, in many parts, a place where political ideology is promoted from the pulpit especially during a four-year cycle, right? I mean, the closer you get to the election date, you see more churches that are focusing on political things, and it can be a presidential race, it could be a local ordinance, it could be a measure on the ballot. And so the pulpit has been replaced as a place that's preaching the word of God uh, to a place that is promoting political endeavor. Also, the church has become a platform for secular psychology, giving uh, man's wisdom to life's hardships rather than God's cool and refreshing counsel from his word. You can often go into a church and hear, you know, five ways to make your marriage better or, you know, how to be a, uh, how to be a better husband or things, things that really are not taught in scripture but they're from the counseling world but they're presented in the guise of Christian terminology. The church has become a social gathering where entertainment is embraced as the means by which we get the gospel message out to the masses. In other words, it's become 
watch what we're doing. And hopefully while you're watching what we're doing, you'll hear a gospel. The problem is, usually in that context, the gospel that you're hearing is not the gospel. It's a very watered-down kind of gospel. And so that message is diluted as being popular or being ultimately a message that could be tolerated. Another way would be the church has become a marketing strategy to gain followers and to meet people's needs. Now you're seeing less and less of that in one sense. The old market-driven church and the, I want to say the seeker-sensitive style church um, is more a thing of the, the 90s and early 2000s, but um, it's still present and some of the ideology behind church growth is certainly active in the, the church today. Now, as I mentioned, I realize this is a simplified and broad swoop of the character of the church in America, but it does leave us asking some questions. Is there really any hope for the church? Is there any way that the church, like Gateway, can even make a difference? I mean, just think about it, guys. How can we be effective in what God has called us to do? How can we impact the people in our care, that would be part of our church family, to take their responsibilities seriously and faithfully serve God with what he has given them. It's a daunting thought. Seems quite overwhelming. This past week, along with the many other things I was doing in the background, I was listening to a conference that was taking place in Bethlehem, Israel. <clears throat> Bethlehem is in the West Bank, so it's a Palestinian territory. And this, this conference was being hosted by Bethlehem Bible College, which is a college that basically trains Palestinian Christians um, in their faith and ultimately to go out and to populate the churches and to see the gospel go forward. It's not a large college, maybe 120 students, um, but uh, they have a you know, good faculty there. But the, the, they had this conference, and the, the purpose of this conference was called Christ at the Checkpoint, but the purpose of this conference was to focus on uh, all the things that are taking place within the body of Christ in Israel between Zionist Jews and Palestinian Christians primarily regarding this whole issue of occupation, Israeli's occupation, and the abuses that are taking place on, on both sides. And the goal was to say, Christians, on both sides of the wall, can we come together and can we learn from one another and can we grow together in our understanding of, of how we live in this context in a way that at least we are at peace together? Because Christians should be at peace together, right? You got Christians on one side and you got Christians on another side, they should find ways to work together, but that isn't necessarily true with the Zionists. Because the Zionists see themselves as above any Gentile believers. What was interesting to me as I listened to uh, what was being said, there was one particular speaker, Dr. Johanna Catenacho, I think his name is. I think that's how you pronounce it. But he was one of the professors at the Bible College, and he leads the, the Baptist church there in, um, uh, in Israel of, of the Palestinian Christians. And he said basically this, in spite of people being forced out of their homes at gunpoint and relocated into West Bank territories, in spite of the ongoing persecution and suffering at the hands of Israel and, at times, from extreme Muslims, in spite of the Zionist Christians, the Christian Jews, who consider the, the, consider the Palestinians second class, in spite of a struggling economy, 
And if you've ever been to Bethlehem, you know, or there's a few gift shops, but pretty much everything else is bare. There's not much going on there at all. Um, in spite of the neglect of the church around the world and in Israel, they are confident that God has called them, even though they're few in number, to reach the Holy Land for Christ. And then he started to unveil this strategy. And he started to talk about how churches are being planted and established in Palestinian communities. And that baptisms are taking place and churches are growing slowly and steadily. They're still small in number, but they're saying, listen, we want to evangelize this land for the glory of God. And I'm thinking to myself, how often have you heard about the Palestinian Christians? You hear about, I want to say, the Zionists in Israel, but you don't hear about the Palestinian Christians. In fact, if you hear Palestinian, you're usually suspect, right? But here they are, a people that have been brushed aside by and large, a people that have been neglected by and large even by the church in America because one of the problems with the church in America is that we have, we have this nostalgic view of Israel that they can do no wrong. Now just think about it. It flows out of our eschatology that God's going gonna to establish the land and he's going to bring Israel back into the land, okay? But Israel is still in a place of disobedience right now, all right? Now, there's, there's a lot of complications. And the point here, though, is this. Here is this small group of believers, smart, educated, articulate, with a vision to reach the Holy Land for Christ. How in the world are they going to do it? Is it even possible for them to be the kind of church that God wants them to be in that kind of context? And then I thought to myself, well, wait a second. We may not live in the Holy Land. We live in the pagan land, right? And is it even possible for us, little gateway, to have an impact in the place where God has placed us? Is it even possible to think that we could be that kind of a church that would glorify God and be effective and bring about the kind of impact that God wants us to have in this place? I mean, just think about it. We're, we're a small church, you know, 70 to 120 on a good day. Um, you know, 40 of that would be children if we were up at the 120. Um, you know, we're, we're just, we're simple people. Um, there, there's, there's nothing... Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no celebrities in here unless you're kind of a closet celebrity. We don't know you. Uh, maybe you have like a YouTube following or something like that. I don't know. But, I mean, there, there's no one here that's like, wow, did you know that they go to Gateway? No, we're just common, everyday people. We go to work. We're parents. We're, you know, moms and dads, husbands and wives. Um, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're all sorts of just normal, everyday people. How in the world can God work his will through a group of people like us. And there's a sense in which you're like, you know, you can be kind of overwhelmed. We're a struggling people. Marriage issues, parenting issues, health issues, financial issues, just plain issues, even with our small group. Can God actually do something through us? Like I mentioned, we don't have any celebrity status people. Um, your pastor is not on the TV. He's not on the radio. I haven't written any books. I've written a couple of articles that no one knows about. 
I'm not a regular conference speaker. I'm just your teaching pastor. <laughs> okay? And I don't mean that in a woe is me thing. I'm just saying there, there's, no, there's no celebrity status going on. There's no draw. Okay? How will we accomplish what God has called us to? How will we get from our calling to our inheritance? What is it that we need to do? What is it that Paul directs our attention to? And that's what I, I want us to, to think through as we go through this passage of Scripture here because what we have, just like in verses 13 through 14, which was one long sentence, we have here from verses 15 through 23 another long sentence. Okay? In verses 13 through 14, we saw by virtue of this eulogy, this praise, how the church came into being. And we saw the spiritual blessings that are in Christ, and there we saw the past spiritual blessing of election and predestination, the ongoing spiritual blessing of adoption and redemption and forgiveness, and then the future spiritual blessing, which is still awaiting us, but is promised for us and guaranteed for us by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Those are all true, but now he transitions into a prayer for the church, for the saints, in verses 15 through 23. So he, he's, he's shown us how the church came to be, but now he's going to reveal to us how we are to live for Christ by virtue of this prayer. In this prayer, he's going to pray some things that he wants the people to realize, he wants the people to be aware of so that they can live for him. So Paul, in this one long sentence, presents a powerful prayer in three parts. And the first one here is what I'm calling the foundation of Paul's prayer. The foundation of Paul's prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you or for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, let's just do a little bit of adjusting in the text here. And what I mean by adjusting is not correcting it, but just clarifying it, all right? Where he says, for this reason, now put a little parenthesis, because what follows is gonna be kind of a parenthetical statement. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, finish the, the parentheses there, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. In other words, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you. What is the foundation of his prayer? What is the basis of his prayer? What is he appealing to? Well, let's think about for this reason. The prayer that Paul was making on behalf of the Ephesian church did not stand alone. It was based on something that had already been said in this letter. He was convinced, Paul was convinced that God was at work in the Ephesian church that he had called them, that he had predestined them to be sons, that he had adopted them, that he had redeemed them, that he had forgiven them, that he had secured their inheritance. And all I'm doing is going through the, the theological precision that he revealed to them in verses three through 14. He's saying, for this reason, this, this flows on the heels of what he's just said, for this reason, I give thanks. So he recognized that the spiritual blessing that had just finished, or they had just finished praising God for, was theirs. And friends, 
that spiritual blessing, just like it was theirs, is ours also. And so even as we pray for the church, for one another, our prayer is founded on what God is is doing but has already done and is yet to do that is certain, that we know is true. Okay, So we move then for, from, for this reason and then to this little parenthetical part here because I heard and hear um, it just wasn't just what he said was true. He also recognized that their practical faith and their love was evidence that they were truly called by God. It was their faith in Jesus Christ that was demonstrated by their affirmation of him, by the change that took place in them. And then there's this love toward all the saints. There was a new kind of relationship. So their their faith marked them as being different than their pagan counterparts. They were a new community. And we're going to turn there in just a little bit, but in, in Acts chapter 19 is the, the story of how the church began and the things that took place there. And it was clear in Acts chapter 19 that the paganism was a very, you uh, might want to say, occult paganism. There was uh, magic and people performing magic that were converted. And there was this worship of Diana that was taking place. There was this temple worship. And so there was this, this kind of mystical... Um, uh, occult ideas that were present. And so when he says, I've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus, there is something that is marked, that is different about them, that reveals that what they have done is moved from darkness into light. And that is a significant thing when you're living in a community where everyone is practicing a similar form of religion, in that case, a pagan religion. And when you stop doing that, And to the point, they stopped doing it, that those that were practicing magic brought out all their books and they burned them as a public demonstration of their faith. So not only their faith, but their love for one another toward all the saints. This is all evidence that they were truly called by God. So this prayer, friends, is built upon a foundation of truth combined with fruit, truth of their faith and the fruit that is the evidence of that faith. And there's a question here for all of us. Can we draw attention to both of these realities in our church? Can we draw attention to the fact that we are a people who have put our faith in Christ? Is there something that is markedly different about us? And I'm not saying necessarily markedly different about us from other churches. I'm saying from the culture in which we live. Do people know that we are God's children? Is there something about us that is clearly evident that we have aligned ourselves with him? And secondly, we'd say, do do we recognize that God has revealed um, himself through us in our love, in how we interact with the body of Christ? When you get a phone call and there's someone that's part of the church that needs some help, and maybe you're at work or maybe you're in a situation where you're with some other people that are unbelievers, and you get that phone call and you hear that person needs help, and you say, hey, I'm sorry, I have to leave because I have to go help so-and-so. Oh, how come you have to go help so-and-so? Well, they're part of my church. See, there's a, there's, a, there's a loyalty, there's an understanding, there's a relationship that as a church, we're looking out for one another. We're not just gathering together on a Sunday morning for the purpose of, of you know, having some bagels and donuts 
We're coming together to worship the Lord, to, to be under his word, but also to be a family together. And that family together continues to be together, although we disperse throughout the week. And that is a unique mark of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So if people were to look at Gateway, if people were to look at your life, would they say, now there goes a church or there goes an individual that is putting their faith in Christ and is evidencing love for the brethren? Is that true of you? Is that true of us? This is the foundation of this prayer. And these two realities, the spiritual blessing and this, this spiritual evidence, then draws Paul to say next, I'm thankful for you. He says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So there's something that he is truly thankful for. Now listen, when you pray for your gateway family and you, you rest who they are on these two foundational truths, does that cause you to be grateful? That the people that you're fellowshipping with love the Lord Jesus Christ, have put their faith in there. Not that they're just playing some game, not that they're just kind of being religious, that these are the real deal. And that these, these real deal people are part of this fellowship that you're a part of, and when you think about what God has done through them and in them, you are now causing, or that's causing you to be grateful to, to know them and to be a part of that fellowship too. And I would say certainly. We want to be a part of a church family that's real, that genuinely has faith in Christ, that genuinely loves the brethren, and that certainly causes gratitude to well up in us. So let me ask you, what is the foundation of your prayers? When you think about the reason why you pray, and when you go out to pray, what is it that you're thankful for? Certainly Paul appealed to the redemptive plan of God. He appealed to the evidence that God was at work in the people of God. And as you look at your own life in the middle of your struggle and pain and your circumstances, do you go to God in prayer remembering yourself or reminding yourself about the redemptive plan of God? I mean, here you are and you're sick and you're struggling. Do you purposely go into that time of prayer saying, okay, he called me, and I have an inheritance. And getting this grand scope, and I believe him, and because he called me and I have an inheritance, I am in him, and you're, you're placing yourself in the context of that reality. Friends, that's, that's one of the ways we enter into prayer, is, is, to, is to pray with that foundational reality on our hearts. You take time to reflect on the security of your faith in Christ, the ongoing work of Christ that is evident in your life. Not your perfection, but your pursuits. Anyone here ever fall flat on your face in sin? Anyone here do it regularly? Okay, You don't, no, you don't have to nod your heads or raise your hand or anything like that. Aren't you thankful that because of your walk with God, that even when you do that, that he is more concerned, not in the moment, but he's more concerned about your pursuit? He knows that you and I are going to fail. He knows that you and I are going to sin. He knows that you and I are going to struggle with sin. 
but he is concerned that we are, we are putting off and putting on in the process of growing to be like Jesus Christ. And that reality, friends, helps us because we need that foundation as we come to him in prayer, as we pray for one another. That we remember that God has called us, that we remember that God has redeemed us and forgiven us, that we remember that as called, adopted, redeemed, forgiven people, we have yet an inheritance to look forward to that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, this is foundational. This is helpful. But friends, God doesn't want you to stop there. God goes, Paul here goes to prayer for the Ephesian church because he doesn't want us to stop simply at that place. This is the foundation, but now he wants to build on that foundation. So let's now um, think about what I'm calling the focus the focus of Paul's prayer. And this this is primarily most of this passage. From the foundation of God's sovereign will and the evidence that of, that, that of that will in the lives of the Ephesian church, Paul now reveals to us the real focus of his prayer. And it comes to us in two parts. And he's gonna kind of lay a foundational truth and then he's gonna flesh out three implications of that for us, okay? The first part is that they would know God better the second part is that they would know, God, know the nature of their salvation better. It's not in your notes, so just, just understand this, okay? So let's think about, he's, he's wanting them to know God better. Look at verse 17. That the God of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of, of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And Just pause there. That the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, so that the Holy Spirit, through his ministry of of granting us wisdom, granting us insight, would would help us to grow in our knowledge of him. So he's praying that that God the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I think the the, the greatest, um, well, I I should say, I, I, I like what James Boyce says when he says, I think the greatest need of the church today is for professing Christians really to know God. Now, he's now with the Lord. But when he was asked the question, what is the greatest need that man has? It basically came down to, you know, we, we really need to know God um, better. What does A.W. Tozer says? Um, the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, I want us to think through because there's some pitfalls when I say things like this. Um, that, that, by the way, this, this, this desire should be the heart of every pastor, the, every, every elder, that those under their care would know God better. This should be the, the, the heart of every parent, every mom, every dad, um, every school teacher who has the, the ability to, to, to share God's word in the context of a classroom, that those children would know God better. But sadly, we we settle for something far less. Let's just think through what we settle for. And um, the first one is this, we settle for little knowledge. We settle for just enough knowledge, in a sense, to get me into heaven, right? I, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Well, it is enough, but there's far more. <laughs> 
And, and Paul here is pushing, he's pushing these Ephesian believers to not settle for just enough, but to push on for more. Now it's good. It's good to have the basics. It's good to have, I want to say, the beginning and that little knowledge, but there's so much more that God has for us. So the second thing is we can settle for mere knowledge. In other words, you know, we, we know scripture, we know facts, we know some you know, doctrinal points, but that's not what God is talking about when he's saying, I, I, you know, I want you to, to know God. It's not simply the, the mere uh, you know, a, a, a accumulation of knowledge, which leads us into the next thing, and that is that simply the knowledge about God, right? It's not so much knowledge about God. There, there, there are people who know theology, and they can argue theology. They can argue points of doctrine. They've got their facts down. They can, they can debate. They can tell you all about the attributes of God. But it's possible to know about God and to not know God. And we want to make, that, make sure that that distinction is true because this is where Paul is going. He's saying, listen, it's not just, it's not just about knowing about God. I want you to know him. Okay? Now, what does, it, what does it ultimately mean to, to know him? Well, John 17, 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this, this knowledge of God is critically important. So it's not enough to simply have a little knowledge, mere knowledge, or knowledge about God. He wants us to know God, okay? Now, that no is a no by means of experience. It is a no that takes place um, because you are interacting with God. And let's just think about then what that knowledge looks like a little bit, okay? It means to know him personally. There is something personal about this relationship with God. It's not simply head knowledge, but there is experience with God. It is, um, it is recognizing his involvement in your life. Okay, where, where your mind and your heart and your will are affected and directed by the ongoing activity of God. So there's this personal dynamic going on. There's this involvement that is taking place. And that's why uh, God speaks and says in his word that that the word of God should prick your heart, should direct your passions, should, should drive you to repentance, should, should stir up joy in the forgiveness that he gives. See, this is, this is where the, the Holy Spirit and you personally are interacting together. When the word of God is preached, when you're opening up in your devotions, when you're singing a song like you were today, and you're confronted with truth about God, there is something that interacts with you personally. That is a revelation that you know God. And Paul is saying, I want you to know him better. Is there anyone in here that, that recognizes that I, I've pretty much reached all I can as far as knowing God better? No. There's a, I mean, it's, it's, you can't exhaust the knowledge of God. But he's pushing these Ephesian believers to know God better. J.I. Packer says, rightly, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the longer or the, the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. So this, this knowledge is his knowledge of me and my knowledge of him. There is something relational that is going on here, okay? 
And I want to be careful. We're not talking here about something that's, that's mystical. I'm not talking here about, you know, having to go up into the mountains and, and connecting with God and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about the fact that in your daily walk, there is this interaction that's taking place. Let me, let me try and give you an example. You know, you're, you're struggling because financially things are tight. And so you know, okay, God teaches me that I need to come before him and I need to pray. And so you go before the Lord and you pray. But you also know, because God has taught you, that you need to be content with what you have. You also know that you need to be a good steward. You also know that God will supply all your needs according to Christ Jesus, okay? And so all these things are coming into play, and all these, these things are, are, are bouncing in your head and in your heart by virtue of the Holy Spirit's activity that there's interaction that has taken place. And that interaction then produces in you peace, joy, contentment, confidence, even when the bill comes and you're not able to pay it, you haven't thrown in the towel on God, you're still resting in him. Why? Because you're interacting. You're, this is a personal involvement with God, and so you go back to the word, and you think more about what the word of God teaches about that particular situation. There is this personal knowledge that is taking place. Now, I want you to, to notice, then, the second thing that he mentions in this, the second part, I'm calling it the, the, to, to know the nature of our salvation better. So there's this, this, first of all, this desire to know God, this personal involvement with God, to grow in that area by virtue of the Holy Spirit's wisdom um, and his, his guidance. But secondly, there's this, this prayer that they would know the nature of their salvation better. And notice verse 18, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. So this heart has eyes. It's just a picture to help us understand that understanding comes through the eyes of the heart to enlighten them, to give them understanding, to give them wisdom, to give them um, insight. Again, this is not some kind of a mystical new revelation. Um, this is a, an enlightening about something that you and I already know about. So a man marries a woman. And after 20 years of marriage, he looks back and reflects on how his knowledge of his wife has grown through the years. Well, they still struggle. They still have issues in their marriage, but their marriage has grown. But he knows more about his wife now, not because he looked outside of his marriage to find out more about his wife, reading all sorts of books and magazine articles and blogs on the internet. No. He didn't go on weekend retreats and didn't go up to Yosemite and try and find his wife out there. No, all the data, all the information was there all the time. And he knows her better because he has spent time with her. He's interacted with her on a regular basis. Now friends, see, this is, this is what God is saying here to us through Paul, that as you know God, or as you interact with God, as you spend more time with God, these realities are going to become more uh, areas where you're more aware of what that looks like. Okay, so the same is true then about us. The story is told about um, by Warren Wearsby about um, William Hurst of Hurst Castle, and he once read an about an extremely valuable piece of art, and so he had one of uh, one of his servants. Um, to go off and do an extensive search and find that piece of art because he wanted it. And about two months later, 
this, this associate of his came back and said, we have found this piece of art. And he says, you own it, and you have it in a warehouse, and it's collecting dust. Here he was going all over the place trying to find what he already had. Now, friends, hear this. What we're talking about here is not new knowledge. What we're talking about is what God has already given us that he wants us now to, to grow uh, in better knowledge about. Think about it this way, 2 Peter 1.3. Having uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So his power has given us all things. We have all things at our, at our disposal. As I lift up the word of God, I'm saying to, to myself and I'm saying to you that by virtue of the word of God, God has revealed himself. Everything we need is contained here. So it's not that I need new knowledge, but I may need more insight into what has already been given. And so that's how Paul now is, is praying for these Ephesian believers. I want them to know God better. And there are three areas that he identifies here. To know, first of all, what I'm calling the hope to which God has called them. That's what it says in the passage, that you may know <clears throat> what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, I just want you to think about this. How do we usually think about hope? Is hope usually something that's in the past, the present, or the future? We usually think of it as the future. But what is connected to this word hope? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. When did the calling take place? Just based on the context of what he's just said in this letter. It's in the past. In fact, it took place before the creation of the world. And what he's saying here is this, that he wants us and he wants these Ephesian believers to have a hope <laughs> that is rooted in what has taken place in the past, in particular, in that calling. Now, the world's hope is wishful thinking, is it not? You know, I hope it's sunny tomorrow. All right? Now, if I was in England, it would be, I hope it stops raining. All right? And if you're in Atlanta, it's, I, I hope that, you know, I get some relief from this heat and this humidity. It's a wishful thinking. It's a longing. There's no guarantee. When you watch the weatherman on TV during the newscast, are you sure that he knows what he's talking about? How many times have you looked or checked on your iPhone, what's the weather going to be like? And to, they get up the next day and it's like, you know, i got to re-iron a bunch of clothes, right? Because it's all different. You can't always guarantee what they're saying because it's a hope that is wishful thinking. We might have some idea, but when we come to biblical hope, it is certain. It is guaranteed. If God says it, it will be taking place. So in this passage, we are called to hope in something that is not future but is in the past. So it is rooted in the magnificent truths of election, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, and day by day it is moving forward toward our inheritance. So we've been called to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what he's called us to. So we hope in that. 
we have been called to the hope of the unfolding work of God's plan. So we hope in that. We don't always see all the connecting dots, all the connecting streams, but we know with a certainty that what he has begun, he will what? He will finish. See? And this is, this is different. We usually think of hope as being something future, but here he's saying you're hoping in the calling, but that calling then pushes to the future, to our inheritance. Secondly, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? When we studied verses 11 through 14 last week, we saw that there are two aspects to our inheritance that are talked about in Ephesians 1. There is, first of all, the inheritance that we receive, that is, the many spiritual blessings or riches that are ours because they are part of our inheritance. So it's this inheritance that we have yet to look forward to that, is, that has with it all these wonderful blessings. Okay? And then there is this inheritance that, that we are, okay? that we are God's. All right? And here, notice what it says. What are the riches of whose inheritance? His glorious inheritance. Okay. And this is kind of going back into this Old Testament language. We talked a little bit about this last week, so I don't want to go too far into it, but in the Old Testament, he talks about his people, the children of God. They are his cherished people, his prized possession. And in this letter, um, th- this is how Paul is using it in this particular location. Why would that be important to the Ephesian believer? Now, let's turn now to Acts chapter 19. And this is where uh, we want to take just a few moments. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I would encourage you, as you have time, to read Acts Acts 19 to get a kind of a foundational perspective on the book of Ephesians and the context that they were in at that point in time. Um, Let's just pick it up at verse 11. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. By the way, that's where televangelists get all their gimmickry from. Seriously, that's where they get it from. Okay. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus, uh, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Get this. And this became known to all the residents of what? Ephesus. Now you get the picture of, this is is an occultic, um, spiritual, pagan context. Both Jews, so this, the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came 
to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. Now there's more that's talked about in that passage about the temple of Diana, or Artemis as it's called here. Um, there's this presence, there's this kind of, this, this evil, pagan, um, kind of a witchcrafty, uh, occultic presence that is, that is true there in Ephesus. So the question is, why would, why would this now message of we are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints be important to these people? Because we have this example of all these people taking their books, taking their livelihoods, and taking them out into the streets because of their conversion. And rather than selling them, burning them. Now what happens, if your whole livelihood, for example, was that you were a magician, and you were converted, and now you're converted, and you're no longer a magician, and all of your books that had all the incantations, or all the spells, or all the formulas for all the stuff you did, is thrown into a fire, you are publicly demonstrating by throwing your books into the fire that I am now a follower of Christ, faith, and that I am not even willing to sell you the evil resources that I have, I would rather them be burned with fire, even though there's some value connected to them. It's pretty powerful, right? I mean, why didn't they sell them and build a church instead? That's because Judas wasn't there, right? To give them that idea. No. So, so the question is, why, why then would they need this? Because they needed to be reminded that their riches are not based in what they have. All right? Their, I want to say, physical inheritance has gone up in smoke. Now, this may not necessarily be true for us in our context. Maybe for some of you it was. But when people come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they may be called out of a pagan family into the body of Christ. And the result of that is if you go that direction, you're no longer one of our family members. They're ostracized. Their inheritance has been taken away from them. They are on their own. So it may not hit us that hard, but in many cultures that is true. If you move from Islam to Christianity, all right, you're, you're cut off. And here they are in this culture, and they're moving from pagan Diana worship with all its occult practices into Christianity, and they are abandoning that relationship, their influence there. They're also abandoning their, their present financial, physical inheritance. And so here comes Paul saying, I'm praying that they will grow in their knowledge of the riches that they have in this inheritance, that being one of God's children and being one of God's possession is a most beautiful reality. That your value is that you are part of God's people. And this, of course, begins this whole subject and continues, I should say, this whole subject of the saints, of the church, who we are. What is really important? What is valuable? And that's why 
we began today, and I'll read it again, 1 Peter 2, 9, when Peter says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I mean, he could be speaking right about the Ephesians there. All right? This is God's inheritance. Just go back and look that his divine power has granted us. Sorry, where am I at here? Uh, I jumped ahead too far. There you go. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So when God says that we are his inheritance, that inheritance comes then with value. As the church, we are his prized possession. And with that being true, then he is, he is working his will. He's working his plan through that prized possession. And that's what the rest of this book is about. It's about the church. And it's about God at work in the church. In fact, many people have said the book of Ephesians is this the letter about the church? Okay. And the last one here, to know the power of God to be the church. So how, how is it that we can be the church? Well, notice what it says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? So here we are, the church. We are his prized possession. And now there is this power that he is giving to us to be that church. All right, here's this little church in Ephesus. Here's this little gathering of churches in Palestine. Here's this little church in Castro Valley called Gateway. How is it that we are going to be the church that God wants us to be? Well, first of all, we need to grow in our knowledge of God. Not just head knowledge, but our relationship with him. Put him to work. Realize who he is. Obey him, listen to him, follow his counsel, rest in him, trust in him, and just get that as to be part of your habit in life. And then also begin to grow in this awareness of the salvation that we have, that our hope is rooted in our calling, right? that these riches are rooted in the inheritance that we are his, that we are his possession, that we are his church, and that the power to do what we need to do is not our own power. It is his power at work through us. So growing in Christ is not a result of my personal achievement. Certainly I must see the need for it, in other words, growth, and apply the principles that God has given. In other words, I, you know, God says, read your Bible, pray, apply the spiritual dif- disciplines, there's all sorts of them. And we have the great privilege, and I say privilege because I think it is, as, as, as God's people to be able to read his word, he's revealed it to us, and because we are his children, the Holy Spirit is able to reveal what that word is talking about, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to intercede in prayer like Paul is doing for these Ephesians, to exercise our spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ, mercy, helps, administration, exhortation, all that kind of stuff. But the distinction that we need to realize is that growing in Christ is not accomplished through my personal effort. So these are all disciplines. These are all principles that need to be a part of my life. But it's not the principle itself that causes the growth. 
okay? Don Whitney has written a great book on spiritual disciplines in the Christian life, and I'll summarize what he says. He says the spiritual disciplines are simply the channel that God works his growth through. So in other words, when we place ourselves in a discipline of Bible study, Bible reading, prayer, meditation, these are then the channels through which his grace through which his grace flows. He is the one that causes the growth. We're the ones that just place us in that discipline so that growth can take place. So we don't measure our growth on, well, how long did I pray? How long did I read? How much did I memorize? We measure our growth on, is God and his grace at work through this discipline? Is he fashioning and shaping me through this spiritual discipline? So if you're just reading God's word and you're just like, you know, you're daydreaming and all this kind of stuff. Just stay, stay with it and say, God, give me wisdom, give me strength. I want you to work through this. And as, as you read, as you study, as you meditate, God will, through that, bring growth into your heart, bring growth into your understanding. Now, how does this all take place? You might say, what is the, what is the, the actual fuel for all of this. This is, this is how he closes it out. The fuel for Paul's prayer. <clears throat> now it's the same word that we just got finished done looking at, but he fleshes it out even more. So there's a sense in which all that is said right now flows under that third point, okay? But also reflects back to the other things that are being said. He says, according to, okay? On the basis of. This is the vehicle through which this happens. That's what that that those little words mean, okay? So let's just kind of go back and, and pick it up, not mid-sentence, but let's pick it up as it flows. And I want to read it again, okay? So let's pick it up there. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that what are the riches of the glorious, glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ uh, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over um, all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's a lot packed into the last few verses here, but I want to today approach it from the perspective this is all part of his prayer still, okay? Because it is. But I want to see it as that. What is going on here? He's basically saying this. Here's the logic of what's going on. He begins by talking about the working of his great might. He's talking here about his power and about the power that we have at our disposal. And that power then... Um, is a powerful power. This is his great might, okay? And it's demonstrated primarily in three ways here. Notice, first of all, it's demonstrated by his resurrection. So according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ hmm, when he raised him from the dead. Now, we celebrate at Easter the resurrection, and we celebrate the power of the resurrection, and we think about the power of the resurrection as the same power that helps us to overcome the struggles that we're facing, that can take us from darkness to light. Now what Paul does here, though, is he says, now that's good. 
I want you to see the power of the resurrection. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. God's power is not exhausted when he has raised Jesus from the tomb. His power continues on. Because now Jesus is raised, but notice what it says, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. All right, and so now we have his ascension. Far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come. So he's, he's placed him on this seat. He's ascended him to the seat. That is all part of God's power. And he's trying to reinforce the fact that God's power is powerful. <laughs> okay? And then he talks about his rule. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. So his resurrection power, his ascension power, and his ruling power. And that is where he is right now. He is ruling over all things. And more specifically, he draws it back and says he's ruling over the church. See, this is all God's power on display. And I, this, this is actually just amazing for me to see as Paul unfolds this because, you know, we, we do kind of stop at resurrection power. We think, okay, you know, Easter, that is like the, the apex. And it is, don't get me wrong. It is, it is the focal point of Christianity that Jesus Christ rose from the tomb. But God's power didn't stop then. It wasn't like, you know, okay, I've done my job now. Come on, let's, well, somehow we'll get you up here. No, God is still full of power. He's still accomplishing his will. He's still accomplishing his work. And so Paul is saying, I'm praying for the Ephesian believers to get a, 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 a better idea, a growing understanding and awareness by virtue of the Holy Spirit's wisdom and insight to help them understand that they can see this power of God in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his rule. Now, that then is the fuel for them to live between the calling and their inheritance, between what we would call the cross and the resurrection. We are able to live in hope, according to his riches, being his inheritance, but with the fuel of the power of God working through us. And hear this. The reason you and I are able to overcome that sinful habit is not because of our diligence. It's because God is powerful. The reason Gateway Bible Church might be used by God in a way that we cannot imagine is not because we're so smart, not because we're so clever, not because we're full of celebrities, not because we're on the radio, but because God's power is at work through his church. And his purpose is to take us to a place to be holy and blameless before him. That is what he is working toward. We already are holy and blameless, but he's moving us to the place where practically speaking in this life, we are holy and blameless before him. That all happens not because of our work, but because of his power at work through us. And if you remove his power and you say it's your work, we've just entered legalism. We've just entered bondage. We just entered religion. 
We've just entered God. Look at me. Aren't I doing great? Am I worthy? But when we bring, we pull back on that and we, we bring in God's power, we say, God, anything that is good in me is only because you have done it. And my failure and my sinfulness is the means by which you are showing my, me my dependence on you and I can trust that your power is great because that power rose Jesus from the dead, ascended him to heaven, and he's seating on the throne of heaven, ruling all, ruling the church. That same power is at work in my life and I can trust it and I can lean on it. See, friends, we, we need to be mindful. Our eyes need to be open to these wonderful, powerful blessings and resources that we have because we are God's church. So is there hope for us? Is there hope for the church in Palestine? Right? The, the question is, or the answer is absolutely. And we don't know exactly what God's gonna do, but we have to be faithful doing what we believe God says that we should be doing and trust that in doing that, he's gonna accomplish his will. So Lord, help us today as we, con- we consider and we contemplate these realities, not only in this church, but in our lives. Lord, we, we often look in the mirror and we say, Lord, how, how can you use me? Who am I? I failed so much. I've, I've sinned so many times. My, my gifts are limited and my, my, um, my reputation is tarnished. Or, Lord, there's so many things that our apparent hindrances to us being used by you. And it's so easy for us to, to kind of crawl away and settle into some kind of a religious format. But, but Paul here is, is revealing to us that, that we don't have to stay there, that we can move on, we can press forward into knowing you more, into knowing more about your salvation that is at work in us. So Lord, may we not feel feeble because we are standing alone. Lord, may we see that we, because we're a part of you, we're part of your inheritance, that there's something powerful at work, not only in you, but in us and through us. And so, Lord, may we walk around this world fully spiritually charged, so to speak, just wondering, Lord, what you're going to do, excited that you are accomplishing your will through feeble us because, Lord, you want to be glorified. And, Lord, we will just do the best that we can to be conformed to your image through that whole process. Lord, help us to, to gain a better picture, Lord, of, of who we are in Christ and how we live for his glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen.